This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, which is episode 178, entitled The Logos and Targum Onkelos. In this week's episode, we will take a suggestion offered by some listeners of the podcast to look at the Jewish Targums and see how they might illumine the prologue of John's Gospel. In particular, we will look at the Mimra of God. And we should clearly establish from the start of our study that Mimra is the Aramaic word for, well, word. In other words, Mimra is the Aramaic equivalent for the Greek Logos. So I will alternate between talking about the Word of God and the Mimra of God throughout the study, so those phrases are equivalent. Now when it comes to the early evidence of the meaning of Mimra in the Jewish Targums, especially those Targums that can be dated in close proximity to the Gospel of John, we have two meaningful bodies of literature. The first is Targum Onkelos, which will be the focus of this week's study, and the second is Targum Neophyti, which will be the focus of next week's study. As I prepared for this week's episode, which required a lot of reading of Aramaic original text to see how the Mimra of God was used to interpret the activity of Israel's God, I observed that there is just too much data to fit into a single episode, which is why I will extend into next week as well. In this week's episode, however, we will look at the data from Targum Onkelos. We will try to observe any patterns that can be discerned in how the Targumist understood the meaning of God's word or God's memra. We will organize those patterns and see if they offer any meaningful illumination into the prologue of John's gospel, which is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Of course, John's prologue has a lot to say about the word that was in the beginning with God. Will we find that the memra of God is a conscious, pre-existing person alongside the Father? Or will we find evidence that faithfully conveys the standard expressions of God and his word that is found within the Hebrew Bible? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. First point today is looking at Targum Onkelos and its use of the Mimra. Now, Targum Onkelos is named after a famous Jewish disciple named Onkelos. He lived between the years 35 and 120 AD, so most of the first century and the first bit of the second century. And Targum Onkelos 
was written either in the early 2nd century, this is actually what the Babylonian Talmud says, although there are some scholars that note that it's not impossible that the Aramaic of Onkelos, which was the standard Aramaic in literary works from the Second Temple period, could actually be dated to the late 1st century. So Targum Onkelos could be late 1st century, it could also be 2nd century. Either way, it is very close in approximation to the writing of the Gospel of John, making it relevant for our study in what the word, the logos, the memora, might have meant in both contexts. Now Targum Onkelos is just an interpretation of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Targum Onkelos was highly authoritative within Rabbinic Judaism. It was not some sort of fringe document that only a couple of Jewish mystics in a cave understood and read. This is something that was widely authoritative within Judaism. Now within Targum Onkelos, it actually interprets the various ways that God is described speaking and God's activity with the Aramaic word Memra over 200 times. There are over 200 occurrences of the Aramaic word Memra within these five books of the Hebrew Bible as interpreted by Targum Onkelos. And remember these Targums are interpretations in Aramaic of these original Hebrew books of Scripture. Now, when you take all of these 200 occurrences, 200 plus occurrences of Memra, we can look at them and we could organize them and we can categorize them into various ways that are meaningful for our study. I've already gone ahead and done that, and so I have actually found that there are five different ways that the Mimra was used to interpret God's activity within the Torah. And I'm going to give the evidence to demonstrate that. So the first way that I have found is that the Mimra is just another way of speaking about the God of Israel, meaning that the word is one and the same as God. And so let's look at some evidence for this. So in Genesis chapter 9, verse 12, it says, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. And Targum Onkelos interprets this as, this is the sign of the covenant which I appoint between my word and you. So the original Hebrew says, I, the first person, singular pronoun, speaking of God, and Onkelos has interpreted this as God's word. God is one and the same as his word. It's just another way of speaking about God. We can see much of the same in the next verse, Genesis 9, verse 13, where God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And the Targumist interpreted this as that it shall be a sign of the covenant between my word and the earth. So the memora of God is just another way of talking about God, when God speaks there in the first person. The word, the memora, replaced the word me. 
Moving on, we can see in Genesis 22:16 that the passage says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, says Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Genesis 22:16, where we have the episode of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac. But the Targum Onkelos interprets this where it says, By my word I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not spared your only son. So originally in Hebrew, God said, By myself. And the Targumist understood this as, By my word. Meaning, the word of God is one and the same as God's own self. You can see a little bit more of this in Exodus 32, verse 13, where it says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. This is where Moses is speaking to God in the Golden Calf episode. And Targum Onkelos interprets this verse by saying, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you have sworn by your word, to whom you have said, I will multiply your sons. So originally, the Hebrew says, by your own self, and the Targumist understood this as by your word. So the Targumist would interpret the word of God, God's memra, as one and the same as God's own self. A little bit more of this can be observed in Leviticus 26, verse 11. The passage says, I will place my dwelling in your midst, and I shall not abhor you. And Targum Onkelos interprets this by saying, I will place my dwelling in your midst, and my word shall not reject you. To where the memra, God's word, is just another way of explaining God, not abhorring the Israelites. So that's the first discernible way that the memra of God is used in Targum Onkelos. God's word is just another way of speaking of God himself. The word is one and the same as God. The next way that I've found that we can organize the information is that the word or the memra of God indicates a way of bridging the perceived gap between God and his creation. It was sometimes thought that God is distant, God is far, God is in heaven, but God is close in the sense that his presence is able to be felt by his people, by humankind. And the ways that Targum Onkelos would interpret this is by substituting the presence of God with God's own word. And so we can see some evidence for this. Look at Genesis 7, verse 16, which says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. This is in reference to the ark with Noah. But the Targumist interpreted the final phrase, which said, The Lord shut him in, as the Lord protected them with his word. And so you can see that this understanding that God himself actually shut the door was interpreted because of this perceived gap between God and his creation as God protected them with his word. The word becomes this 
intermediary that bridges the gap. A little bit more of this can be observed in Genesis 39, verse 3, which says, His master saw that the Lord, Yahweh, was with him. And the him in context is Joseph. And that Yahweh caused all that he, Joseph, did to prosper in his hands. And Targum Onkelos interpreted this as his master saw that the word of the Lord was his helper and that all that he did, the Lord caused his hands to prosper. So there we could see that the Lord was with Joseph, but the Targumist interpreted this as the word of the Lord was his helper, thereby the word bridging the gap between the Lord that was perceived to be with Joseph. Moving on, we can see in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12, where it says that he said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. So God tells Moses that God is going to be with Moses. But the Targumist, Targum Onkelos, says, He said, because my word will be your helper, and this shall be a sign that I have sent you when you lead your people out of Egypt, you and they will worship before the Lord upon this mountain. So the phrase, I will be with you, is interpreted to bridge the gap between God, supposedly being close with Moses, as my word will be your helper. You can see a little bit more of this in Exodus 4, verse 12, where God says, Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. Targum Onkelos interprets this as saying, Now go, and my word will be in your mouth and it will instruct you what to say. So instead of God being with Moses' mouth, we have God's word being with his mouth, and God's word instructing Moses what to say. In Exodus 33, verse 22, it says, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. This is the episode of Moses wanting to see God, God's saying, I'm going to cover you with my hand. But the Targumist interpreted this as saying, my word will overshadow you until I have passed by. So instead of God personally reaching out with his hand and covering Moses, we now have the word of God overshadowing Moses. Thus the word bridging the gap between God and his eminence. In Numbers 11, verse 23, we could see much of the same, where it says, Yahweh said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? And Targum Onkelos interprets this passage by saying, The Lord said to Moses, Is the word of the Lord restrained? So God's power is demonstrated as God's word. The way that God extends himself with his power is described with God's speech. God's word, the memory of God. Now in the episode with Balaam in the book of Numbers, we can see that the Targumist in Targum Onkelos regards the presence of God in terms of the memory. So in Numbers 22, verse 20, it says, That night God came to Balaam. And the Targumist thought that this was something that was 
too close and too intimate that God in the perceived gap could do. So the Targumists interpreted this passage as the word came from before the Lord unto Balaam by night. So instead of God personally coming to Balaam, we now have God's word coming to Balaam. Similar verse in Numbers 23, verse 3, it says, Then Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your burnt offerings while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And Targum Onkelos interprets this verse by saying, Then Balaam said to Balak, Stay here by your burnt offerings. I will go. Perhaps the word may meet me from before the Lord, and the word that he shows me, I will tell you. So instead of Yahweh coming and personally meeting Balaam, the Targumist interprets this as God's word coming to meet Balaam. And this is expressed a few verses later in Numbers 23, verse 4. It says, Then God met Balaam. And of course, the Targumist interprets this as, Then the word from before the Lord met Balaam. We can see that the word here is just bridging this gap between God and God's creation. In Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. This is God speaking through Moses to the Israelites at the beginning of Deuteronomy. And the Targumist interprets this passage by saying, These 40 years the word of the Lord your God has been your helper. You have lacked nothing. So instead of God being physically with them, it's interpreted as the word, the memora of the Lord your God has been your helper, thus bridging that gap. A little bit later in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Do not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And naturally, the Targumist interprets this by saying, Do not fear them, for the word of the Lord your God will fight for you. So instead of God physically being down there fighting their battles, it is described as the word of the Lord your God fighting their battles. In chapter 4, verse 37 of Deuteronomy, it says, And because he loved your ancestors, he chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. So there we have the presence of God, God's power, and this is interpreted by Targum Onkelos as that because he loved your ancestors and had pleasure in their descendants after them, he brought you out by his word, by his great power. So there the word of God, the memory of God, is describing God's own presence. In chapter 9, verse 3 of Deuteronomy, we can see much the same. It says, Know then today that Yahweh your God is the one who crosses over before you as a devouring fire. Targumonkelos interprets this by saying, Know then today that the word of the Lord your God, he is the one who goes out before you. He is a burning fire. So instead of God physically going and crossing before them, it is God's word, God's memra. So there's a lot of evidence there that the word, the memra, is used to bridge the gap between God and his creation. 
The third way in which Mimra is used in Targum Onkelos is that the word indicates the inner contemplations and deliberations of God. And what I mean by this is that sometimes the text will describe things that God said in his heart or things that God was thinking, and this is described with God's word, with God's Mimra. For example, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6, the text says, And Yahweh was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth. Genesis 6 verse 6. And this is interpreted by Targum Onkelos as the Lord repented in his word that he had made humankind on the earth. And thereby this this inner deliberation and contemplation that God was internally sorry is interpreted as God repented in his word or with his word. In the next verse, Genesis 6 and verse 7, God says that I am sorry that I made them. And Targum Onkelos interprets this as I repent in my word that I have made them. So this innermost feeling of God being sorry is interpreted as God repenting in his word or with his word. In chapter 8, verse 21 of Genesis, we could see a little bit more of this theme. This passage says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. So there Yahweh says in his heart, and this was interpreted by Targum Onkelos as he said in his word. So Yahweh speaking in his heart, a way of describing God in his innermost thinking is described as God saying in his word. The fourth way in which it can be observed that Targum Onkelos understands and conveys the word of God or the memory of God is that the memory indicates the speech, command, and voice of the God of Israel. This, of course, seems to be pretty natural and obvious because a word of anybody is an expression of their speech, their commands, and their own voice. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, where Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, this is interpreted by Targum Onkelos as they heard the sound of the word of the Lord God. So we have the sound of God, and now it's the sound of God's word. In Genesis 3 verse 10, it says, He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Targum Onkelos, of course, says that he said, I heard the sound of your word in the garden. So God's sound is interpreted as God's memory, God's word. Now, when Abraham, described in this passage as Abram, believed the promises of God, we could see that this is also something where God's spoken promises, his commands, are understood as God's memory. So in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Then he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And Targum Onkelos interprets this that uh, then he believed in the word of the Lord. 
and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So believing Yahweh and believing what Yahweh says is interpreted by Onkelos as believing in the word of the Lord because the member of God represents God's speech and God's commands. And this is especially conveyed when God is speaking to the Israelites and telling them that they need to obey him. Like in Leviticus 26 verse 14, where God says, if you will not obey me, and in this particular passage, Targum Onkelos interprets it as, if you will not be obedient to my word. So obeying God in the things that God says is understood as being obedient to God's memra, to God's word. In Numbers 10, verse 13, we can see a little bit more of this. This passage says, They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. Targum Onkelos interprets this as they set out for the first time by the word of the Lord through Moses. There, the memra of God interprets and explains the command of the Lord. Now here's an interesting passage that biblical Unitarians like to cite. In Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a human being that he should lie, or a mortal that he should change his mind. Now this passage indicates that God is not a liar. God is someone that could be trusted. But it's interesting that this is interpreted in terms of God's faithfulness to his speech. In Targum Onkelos, he interprets this particular passage as the word of God is not as the words of men. The sons of men speak but lie, nor is it as the words of the children of flesh. So God, not being someone who lies, is interpreted in Targum Onkelos as the memra of God, not being like the words of men, who lie. So God can be faithfully trusted because he's someone who doesn't lie, and this trust comes from God's memory, from God's word. Moving on, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26, it says, But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God. And this command of Yahweh is interpreted by Targum Onkelos as the word of of the Lord your God. So God's command is understood as God's memra. In Deuteronomy 13 verse 4, the passage says, Yahweh your God, you shall follow. Him alone you shall fear. His commandments you shall keep. His voice you shall obey. Him you shall serve. And to him you shall hold fast. That's Deuteronomy 13 verse 4. Targum Onkelos interprets this passage by saying, The Lord your God you shall follow, him you shall fear, his commandments you shall keep, and be obedient to his word. So obeying God is the same thing as being obedient to God's memra. It's interesting that it is God alone, Yahweh alone, being interpreted as God's memra, as God's word. Now, in Deuteronomy 18.18, we have the famous passage of the prophet that's going to come after Moses. 
and this prophet is going to speak authoritatively. God is going to put God's words in the mouth of this particular prophet. Of course, this passage from Deuteronomy 18 is cited variously in the New Testament to refer to Jesus as that second Moses prophet. And Targum Onkelos actually has an interesting interpretation of this passage. So in Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, it says, Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. In this phrase, I myself, representing the words of God, is interpreted in Targum Onkelos by saying, Anyone who will not heed the words that he will speak in my name, my word will require it of him. So I myself is interpreted as God's memra, God's word. And the fifth and final way that Targum Onkelos interprets the memra of God, the word of God, is that the word is the agent through which creation took place. We are well aware from Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke creation into existence, Psalm 33 verse 6, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And we can see that this way of understanding God's word, God's memra, as the way of God being the sole creator brought creation into existence is conveyed. And it's actually used in a very creative way. So in Deuteronomy 33 verse 26, it says, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, majestic through the skies. And Targum Onkelos will actually expand this passage by talking about the uniqueness of God, the God in the heavens, and it will add to this passage by saying, the habitation of God is from eternity and the world was made by his word. So the world was made, the world was created by God's word. So God is the creator, but God created the world through the agent of his memra, of his word. And this is a way of unpacking and further describing a passage about God's uniqueness, meaning that this God, the God of Israel, is the true God, because in order to be the true God, you have to be the actual creator. And so there we have evidence of the word being that agent through which God created all things. So there we have it. We have five different ways in which the memra of God, the word of God, was used by Targum Onkelos to interpret various passages within the Hebrew Bible, specifically the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So now that we have all that evidence, let's actually turn our attention to John chapter 1, to the prologue of John's gospel. And the prologue is the first 18 verses of the gospel of John. And of course, the prologue talks about the word that was in the beginning with God. And now that we have this evidence of the word, the memory of God, from the Jewish context of Targum Onkelos, can we take those five categories that we have summarized all of the data and see if it sheds any light on how we should read the prologue of John's gospel. 
So let's look at some conclusions. This is our second point, by the way. The relevance of John 1 and the Logos that was with God to Targum Onkelos. So let's look at the conclusions drawn from our study of God's Word within Targum Onkelos and see if our reading of John 1 is illuminated. And so we can take the five conclusions in order and offer a few comments. So the first thing that we noticed was that the Word was just another way of speaking about the God of Israel, meaning that the Word was one and the same as God. Now, there was an abundance of evidence to indicate that the Memra was just another way of speaking about the one true God. In fact, various passages that described in Hebrew, quote, God himself, end quote, was interpreted in the Targum as God's word, God's Memra. This indicates that the word of God was not a distinct person from God, as if God and his word were two distinct persons. The word is just God himself. And of course, it shouldn't need to be said, but the word himself is a singular pronoun. And this should not be surprising because a person's words are a natural spoken extension of their very self. Now in John 1.1, 1, 1, where it says that the word was with God, the evidence from Targum Onkelos suggests that this language would not indicate that God and the Word were distinct persons, as if one person was with a second person. There is no indication in Targum Onkelos that the Word, the member of God, was a conscious person alongside the God of Israel. So to say that the Word was with God would be to poetically indicate that God and his word are working in tandem. They are working closely together. And this preposition with, that the word was with God in John 1.1b, should not be pressed too woodenly so as to remove it from its poetic structure and meaning. Moreover, we can comment on the third phrase of John 1.1, 1, 1, where the word was God. That's the way it's translated in many modern English translations of the New Testament. Although there are a large number of linguists that are suggesting that this is more adjectival than a one-to-one -one equation, meaning that the word was divine or the word was fully expressive of God, where God there is functioning more to an adjective. The point remains that God's word is just another way of speaking of God's own actions and God's activity, just as we see in Targum Onkelos. The second point was that the word or the memora indicates a way of bridging the perceived gap between God and his creation. So now that we've observed that, in the Jewish context of Targum Onkelos, how might that illumine the prologue of John's Gospel? Well, in John chapter 1, God is the sole creator, but God creates through the vehicle of his powerful word. 
meaning God's creative utterance. God's word fully reveals the Father. So the word that is embodied in the human Jesus is able to fully explain and reveal the unseen God, as we see in John 1.18. John 1 also states that in God's word was life, and this life was the light of man. That's in John chapter 1, verse 4. So just as God spoke, let there be light in Genesis 1.3. In addition to speaking creation into existence within the Genesis creation, God's word bridges the gap between the creator and his creation. So we have light and life in John 1 and in Genesis 1, and these are just ways that God is making that connection. In God's word is life creating light, and God is able to create this because God's word is an expression of himself, as we see in the prologue of John. Furthermore, Jesus, as the human embodiment of God's word, he is someone who certainly bridges the gap between the creator and his creation throughout the narrative of John's gospel. Jesus is constantly pointing people to God, saying that no one comes to the Father except through him. We also saw that the Mimra indicated the inner contemplations of God. Now, how might this help us to better understand the prologue of John's gospel? Well, we've already briefly mentioned John 1.1, where the word was with God. And I suggested that since the word was not a conscious person alongside God, it made better sense in terms of God and his word working closely together to perform the creative deeds of God. The evidence in Targum Onkelos confirmed this way of reading. We saw that when God repented, which is an inward orientation, the Targum interpreted this as God's word repenting. In a similar way, when God was sorry, which again is an inward contemplation, the Targum interpreted this as the word or the Mimra being sorry. Furthermore, God's heart, which is certainly a creative way of portraying God's inner deliberation, was likewise interpreted by Targum Onkelos as God's word. Just as we would not think that God's heart was something separate and distinct from God's activity, the Targumist did not think that God and his word were separate and distinct. So in John 1.1b, where the word was with God, these would not be understood as two distinct persons. It is God working closely together in his innermost deliberations that reflect his own self with his speech. We also saw in Targum Onkelos that the Memra indicated the speech, command, and voice of the God of Israel. And there was a lot of evidence that indicated that Onkelos deeply held that God's Memra reflected the speech of God, 
the commands of God, and even the very voice of God. This is a natural way to understand word, and it certainly flows from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which depicts God and his word active in creation, particularly in the Genesis creation. God speaks and things are created. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of God's mouth, all their host. In fact, John 1 verse 3 indicates that all things were created through God's creative and powerful word, which is how the Genesis creation is described in the opening chapter of the Hebrew Bible. The speech and commands of God are therefore not limited to God's act of creation, although they are part of it. The commands of God were to be obeyed, and the Targumist interpreted many of these passages as obeying the word of God, obeying the memora of God. Now John chapter 1 verses 10 through 13 indicate that God's word was in the world, and the world did not recognize God's word, suggesting a rejection of God's commands and his authoritative speech. However, John chapter 1 verse 13 indicates that those who did accept God's word and believed in his name would become children of God. This would indicate a positive reception of God's commands and speech. And of course, as the embodiment of God's word, the human Jesus authoritatively speaks the commands of God, and Jesus naturally functions as God's mouthpiece. The last thing that we saw from Targum Onkelos was that the memora, or the word, was the agent through which creation took place. Now we know that God is the sole creator, but God created the world through his word. And this means that God spoke creation into existence with his creative and powerful utterance. Now when Targum Onkelo speaks of this act of creation involving God and his word, Onkelos is clearly referring to the original Genesis creation. There is no other option available to the Targumist in the context of the passage that he was explaining. And seeing God creating the world through his creative and powerful speech is quite obvious, especially in John chapter 1-3, where all things were made through God's word. And this refers to the act of creation that was clearly situated in the Genesis 1-1 context. Remember that John 1-1 says, in the beginning, which is an actual quotation from the Septuagint of Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning. John chapter 1 verse 10 also says that the world was made through God's word. And this, of course, is just a repeat of what was already conveyed in John chapter 1-3. Now, I need to make this point, and it shouldn't have to be made, but I think the evidence is pretty clear on it. It should be obvious by now, based on 
be data drawn from over 200 occurrences of Memra in Targum Onkelos that the minority reading of John's prologue that regards the word in the beginning with God to refer to the new creation situated in the New Testament ministry of Jesus, this would be a reading that would be absolutely nonsensical to Onkelos. For Targum Onkelos, the word of God, the memory of God, was just another way of depicting God's acts in creation and God's interaction with his people within the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. So the minority interpretation of John's prologue that says that John 1 is not about the Genesis creation, but it's about the new creation in the ministry of Jesus would be a reading of John 1 that would divorce it from its context as created from Targum Onkelos. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Targum Onkelos, which was an early Jewish interpretation of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from either the late 1st century or 2nd century CE, spoke frequently about God and his word. In fact, the Targumist interpreted the actions of the God of Israel in terms of God's memra, which is the Aramaic equivalent to word, which is used over 200 times. We were able to organize the various ways that the Targumist understood the meaning of the relationship between God and his word. We first noted that the memra was just another way of speaking of God, indicating that God's word was basically another way of talking about God himself. There is no indication that God's word was a conscious person distinct from the God of Israel. Second, we observe that the memra of God was frequently used to bridge the perceived gap between God and his creation. In places where God's presence was considered to be too close to humanity, the Targumist interpreted this as God's word being close instead. Third, we noted that God's word was a way to convey the inner deliberations and thoughts of God like when God was sorry, or when God was thinking something in his heart. Fourth, the memor was, naturally, interpreted in light of God's commands, God's speech, and God's own voice. In other words, God's memor was used to understand the many things that God said. And lastly, we noted that God's word was the agent through which God created the world. When we took the evidence from the memory of God observed in Targum Onkelos and we used it as a lens through which to interpret the prologue of John's Gospel, we saw that the data from the Targum greatly illuminated the text. The traditional reading of John 1, which depicted the activity of God and his created speech in the beginning of Genesis, was a reading that was confirmed by Targum Onkelos. Furthermore, the definition of God's word that indicated that it was a personification of God's creative 
and powerful speech rather than being a conscious person alongside God was also confirmed in Targamonkelos. In other words, the memra of God in Targamonkelos was not a pre-existing conscious person. In short, we can safely say that situating John chapter 1 in its Jewish context, which would include the Jewish Targum Onkelos, actually confirms the contextual connection between John 1 and Genesis chapter 1, rather than severing those two passages. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. If you enjoyed this lengthy discussion of data from the Targums, please look forward to next week's episode where we will look at the Aramaic Targum Neophyte to see how its evidence regarding the Word of God sheds light on the prologue of John's Gospel. Please look forward to it. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. It is hosted by Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, please take care.